coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And I would say a happy Monday to you. Hopefully you uh, came through the severe weather outbreak last night and over the weekend in better shape than the folks throughout uh, north central Mississippi and north central Alabama did. Uh, more than two dozen dead so far in that outbreak in what meteorologists are calling another, quote, historic tornadic outbreak. Tying tornado outbreaks or the strength of tornadoes, it's really kind of difficult. And scientists have a hard time tying those to climate change because of a number of factors. For one, tornadoes aren't measured the way, say, hurricanes are. Uh, hurricanes are graded on their strength, wind uh, being the, the notable measure. In tornadoes, because it's really difficult for meteorologists to measure a tornado's wind speed because they pop up so fast and can disappear just as fast, it's really hard to get all the gauges in place. Uh, anybody that's seen the movie Twister knows <laughs> we really haven't evolved that much since 2012 on that measure. But uh so instead, tornadoes are measured on um, how much uh, damage they do. So you could have a super strong tornado go through an extremely rural and undeveloped and unpopulated area, and of course it won't cause that much damage, so it doesn't get graded as intense as, say, uh, what would uh, the, the enhanced Fujita scale goes to 5. It wouldn't, wouldn't rate as an EF5 because it did, it did no damage. And then you can have uh, super short tornadoes that cause a lot of damage in a smaller area that is densely populated and can get a higher rating, an enhanced Fujita scale rating, than it would normally warrant because, again, it, it did more fiscal damage than it did physical damage. Am I making sense there? That being said, we are seeing... A lot more of these, quote, historic tornadic outbreaks. And these aren't happening just in a vacuum. We've got issues in uh, Europe. Europe is drying up. You've got uh, wildfires across Spain. You've got a drought in parts of France. Uh, In fact, so dire that the country in some areas have uh, denied housing permits despite having a huge housing shortage. Europe's drying up. And new housing requires water. Water is not as readily available. In Germany, you've got forests, uh, spruce and hardwoods being weakened by climate change. Just last week, we got this report uh, from the United Nations that says scientists say that the world is, quote, flying blind into the storm. Their uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC, according to Politico, describes a world of long-foreseen impacts arriving now with shocking power. Human suffering, especially among the poor, will increase rapidly in the coming decades. The symbolic limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius will almost certainly be breached. And by the way, in case you're wondering, we're already at 1.2 degrees Celsius. Uh, That is 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, FYI. Uh, This piece in Political goes on to talk about uh, what's clear is that there's a direct correlation between rising temperatures and the likelihood of changes turning increasingly irreversible. For instance, the IPCC said 
With a rise in global temperatures between 2 to 3 degrees Celsius, Greenland and the West Antarctic would almost completely and irreversibly lose their ice sheets for millennia. And in the piece, uh, there's this one line, scientists identified 16 of these so-called tipping points, including the collapse of the Earth's major ice sheets, which would trigger massive sea level rise and a loss of permafrost, leading to a sudden release of carbon dioxide and methane, further fueling global warming. Also bears mentioning that those rising sea levels occur in places in developing countries in the Caribbean and South America and Africa. But we actually see some of those effects here as well. Historic uh, flooding along the Carolina coast. What were those? The hundred year floods, hundred years. Uh, We have persistent flooding problems in the Galveston, Houston area now. Houston is like a good 50 miles inland. And folks, you have to think about it, not just from a, oh gosh, it's going to be tough living through this, or it'll be hotter or more severe. No, people are actually going to be relocating, not not just like along the coastal U.S., I'm talking about throughout the world. Some of the political unrest and uncertainty, serious, serious, a lot of serious issues have to do with extreme climate change issues in that region, drought. Inability to grow crops. That sort of ecological instability leads to political instability, which leads to migrancy, which leads to folks seeking asylum in other parts of Europe and Asia and right here in North America. And here in the United States, we are controlled by a, let's be clear, minority population that has majority control more often than their numbers would warrant they deserve to. And so we take three steps back for every two steps forward on climate policy, but also have this insatiable desire to erect walls and gum up our immigration policy and not address climate change all because we're concerned, well, what if we make sacrifices, but China and India don't? <laughs> it's not like China and India aren't also going to suffer from the effects of climate change. And taking the, well, them first mentality, isn't the United States leading, is it? I know it may seem pedantic or even gauche uh, to talk about the overarching discussion of climate change after a severe weather outbreak. It's pretty myopic in my opinion when we'll have some crazy rapid cold historic freezing scenario and then folks on the right go oh i thought i thought we were going through global warming well i mean obviously winter is still gonna happen but extremes are more the concern than just the fact that in winter you might have cold weather that's where i go back to pointing out anecdotal is always inferior to empirical When you look at empirical global climate data, it's hard not to notice the steady rise in global temperature and the growing number of, quote, historic meteorological events, whether it's historic drought, historic flood, historic tornadic outbreak, historic hurricane intensity, historic timing of said incidences. 
Then comes the conversation about what the global human population should ideally be. Right now, population in the world, as of 2022, is growing at a rate of around 0.84% per year, which is down from just slightly above 1% in 2020 and in 2019, 1.1% in 2018, and 1.12% in 2017. And hey, if you ask the pinheads about this, <laughs> what a sustainable population would be, geographer Chris Tucker says around 3 billion. Um, we're closer to 8 now. It, seriously, Chris Tucker estimates that 3 billion people is a sustainable number. And that's that's even providing that society rapidly deploys less harmful technologies and better management practices. Other estimates of a sustainable global population also all come in well below the current population, which is around 8 billion globally. Here in the U.S., there is a political movement, even religious, pseudo-religious political movement, that is concerned that women are waiting later in life to even have kids or deciding not to have kids, that married couples are opting not to have kids, or that same-sex couples cannot have kids. And then there's the reproductive woman's freedom of choice. Obviously, a political hot button. This is all just sort of a fascinating story watching come together. And I, I kind of watch from the sidelines in a bit. I'm just a 49-year-old single gay male with no kids that I know of, no grandkids that I know of coming uh, either. So I, I don't really have, I literally don't have skin in the game. I mean, I have nephews and nieces. Obviously, I want to... Uh, to uh, succeed in life and, and to, to live a healthy, a healthy, happy existence on this planet when I'm gone. But I don't literally have skin in the game. And yet, I don't know what, why is it I'm more concerned than many of those on the right who do have future generations to leave a planet to? Is it because the brunt of the pain of climate change is going to be felt by the impoverished and impoverished and foreign. I don't like to think of the least of people, but the NIMBY effect really is strong in that crew, right? <laughs> the, if it's not happening to me, it's not a problem mantra is a prevalent mindset on the right. It's hard to ignore. Whereas many in the middle and on the left are, are looking for ways that they can alter their negative impact on the climate and the environment. I mean, I, I recycle. I try even not to use a whole lot of plastic products in the first place because I know that using plastic product means demand for plastic product goes up, which means that more fossil fuels are necessary to make those plastic products. I don't drive that often even. I mean, I live in a major city. Not far from public transportation. I do an awful lot of walking and cycling when the weather's nice. I literally do not drive that much at all. In fact, every time I take my car to uh, get its quarterly maintenance done, they marvel at how little I drive. And that's one of the little things that I'm trying to do. And then you got knuckleheads, a lot of whom live in rural counties like the ones that were just blitzed by tornadoes last night, who like to get their hyper-dieselized, smoke-rolling pickup trucks to just kind of sneer at the libs. I mean, what's the point? Has this mindset just set in with some folks that there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm not even going to bother. It's what's going to happen is going to happen. I'm going to leave it to God. 
God gave you free will. He gave you the the mindset, right, to evolve, to do better, to think better, to think, period. Maybe that was God's contribution. Was it last week we aired the clip of the uh, representative from Boston, the uh, representative Connolly, who talked about how we withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord when Donald Trump was president and then got back in after that and, you know, the negative ramifications that came with that. And then, of course, uh, we all know that, you know, we're, we're on the brink of something with Iran right now. We, of course, pulled out of the Iran nuclear climate accord during the Trump administration when everybody admitted, our own folks included, that Iran was largely compliant. Elections have consequences, folks. People will say, now's not the time to talk about this. It's time to rally to support our friends in Mississippi and Alabama. Yes, absolutely. However, how do those states and those regions of those states tend to vote? This is like pointing out to a chronic gambler why he's always broke. Back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Monday, March 27th. Severe weather last night and yet today is absolutely gorgeous throughout metro Atlanta right now. Uh, not so pretty a scene in Nashville, Tennessee, where as of uh, recording today, and I'm about an hour and a half ahead of you, uh, three students, three adults, according to SWSMV4, uh, are dead after being shot at Covenant, Covenant Presbyterian School, uh, according to the Metro Nashville Police Department. Uh, a 28-year-old Nashville woman and former student at the school entered the school through a side entrance with two assault-style rifles and a handgun. Officers arrived, entered the school through the first floor, and heard shots coming from the second floor. Metro Nashville PD said the responding officers engaged the shooter on the second floor and killed her this morning at 10.27 a.m. local time. The gunman identified as 28-year-old Audrey Hale, and early indications are Audrey is a trans woman. Which the right will make this about. Not that she was a drag queen, because she was not. No drag queen story hour ban could have protected kids today. No, the NRA, the gun nuts, the right wing, they will make this about Audrey being a trans woman. And not the number one killer of kids. The number one killer of kids in this country. It ain't drag queens. It ain't gender affirming care. It ain't video games. It's guns. Guns. Spoiler alert, it's guns. Saw someone share a tweet earlier. Let me find this. Uh, We have uh, Representative Andy Ogles here. Uh, His Christmas picture. Of course, he is the member of Congress who represents Covenant School in Nashville. His Christmas photo. uh, Him and his wife and his three kids all holding rifles for their Christmas photo. Y'all are worried about what TikTok's doing to kids and this country? (laughs) The call is coming from inside the house and it's carrying an AR-15. Covenant Presbyterian School in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm unsure. Do we send extra thoughts and prayers? To a Christian school campus? Yeah. I, you know what? I'm sorry. That's... It, what, what do you say? I, I'm just so frustrated by this. Linda Sullivan, a retired local social worker, community activist in Tennessee, penned an op-ed last September that spoke to her state's 
gun laws and the need for gun reform. I'll pick up where she talks about Tennessee law. An 18-year-old Tennessean can legally purchase the same gun as the Uvalde shooter and ammunition. Mass shootings grab and momentarily hold our attention until the next shooting, but only represent a small percentage of the total number of deaths from homicides, suicides, and accidental shootings. On average, over 40,000 people die and 85,000 are injured from gun violence every year in the United States. No other country in the world even comes close. With over 400 million guns, the U.S. has 25 times the gun homicide rate of similarly developed countries. These countries share common problems such as mental illness, pandemic-related issues, crises, and hyper-partisan politics. We are the outlier. The equation is simple. More guns equals more gun violence. Tennessee fares far worse than many other states, ranking 11th in overall gun violence. Between 2011 and 2020, gun deaths skyrocketed 48% in Tennessee. Homicides increased 103%, and suicides increased 20%. Tennessee now averages 1,273 gun deaths and 2,220 gun injuries annually, which is the leading cause of death among children and teenagers. Sound familiar? Within two weeks of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, two mass shootings occurred in Chattanooga, leaving three people dead and over 20 injured. Outside of the horrific emotional toll, gun violence costs Tennesseans $9 billion a year. Tennessee has few laws which keep guns out of the wrong hands and keep children and families safe. While communities of color have been hit hardest by gun violence, it affects us all and it's happening everywhere. Schools are struggling for solutions to help troubled youth and families to find answers for keeping children and teachers safe without turning our schools into armed encampments. More children are living in homes with guns and are exposed to gun violence because of rising gun ownership. Rural areas facing special challenges with the state's highest gun suicide rates, yet have relatively few supportive resources. She goes on, The Republican failure to expand Medicaid has contributed to the closure of 16 rural hospitals, where many turn in times of crisis. Tennessee ranks 45th in the nation for access to mental health care. Limiting access to guns is a strategy for preventing gun violence saves lives. The majority of Americans and Tennesseans, including gun owners, agree. There is no one fail-safe answer to gun violence, but there are common-sense solutions that can work together to prevent it. Other states have enacted red flag laws, safe gun storage laws, waiting periods, and universal background checks. They've banned or restricted assault rifles and high-capacity magazines, raised the age for gun purchases, and organized gun buyback programs. The states with stronger gun laws have far less gun violence. Tennessee has none of these. It ranks 32nd nationally on the strength of its gun laws. Governor Bill Lee, our Republican U.S. Senators, Congressional Representatives, and the Republican State Legislature have repeatedly failed Tennesseans. Their refusal to take gun violence seriously is putting all Tennesseans at greater risk. Loosening our gun laws and allowing more people to easily access guns is misguided. It is not the solution to the widespread gun violence in Tennessee, as we've recently seen in Chattanooga, and now today in Nashville. There are solutions. We all have the power to stop gun violence. Vote for people who have the courage to stand up for Tennessee's children and families and pass comprehensive legislation that makes us all safe in our homes, our schools, and within our communities. This is not a Second Amendment issue, but clearly a choice to stop the killing. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago I played for you a clip from The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+, Plus, where he was talking to this Oklahoma representative who is all high and mighty about opposing drag queen story time in Oklahoma. Remember this clip? 
You want to ban drag show readings to children. To my house, yes. Why? Why, why? What are you protecting? Why can we prohibit children from voting, those under 18 from voting? Why are you banning, that? Is, is that free speech? Are you infringing on that performer's free speech? They can continue to exercise their free speech, just not in front of a child. Why? Because the government does have a responsibility to protect. I'm sorry? The government does have a responsibility <laughs> in certain instances to What's protect the children. leading cause of death amongst children in this country? And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not drag show readings to children. Mm, correct, yes. So what is it? I'm presuming you're going to say it's firearms. No, I'm not going to say it like it's an opinion. That's what it is. It's firearms. More than cancer, more than car accidents. And what you're telling me is you don't mind infringing free speech to protect children from this amorphous thing that you think of. But when it comes to children that have died, you don't give a flying to stop that because that shall not be infringed. That is hypocrisy at its highest order. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Okay, it seems like to me it's the worst kept secret in politics. I mean, maybe not. Uh, Brian Kemp uh, made it uh, apparent with the Wall Street Journal. He's not even considering a presidential run. <clears throat> when they asked him how he sized up the field, um, he pretty much name-dropped everybody except that guy. And um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a snub. He said, uh, I have a great relationship with Mike Pence, really good relationship with uh, Governor DeSantis. Chris Christie came and campaigned for me multiple times, along with a lot of other governors. I know Tim Scott real well. Nikki Haley came and campaigned for us. I've known her over the years, and I've gotten to meet uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo a couple of times. So I'm kind of like... Everybody else, I'm just seeing how things are playing out and keeping an open mind. <laughs> he did say uh, when when queried by the uh, Wall Street Journal, yeah, I haven't heard from Trump. <laughs> no, I say it's the worst kept secret because I, I think it's no secret. Brian Kemp doesn't want to run for president. Now, a U.S. Senate seat, on the other hand, Mr. Ossoff, I believe, is uh, due up first in... Uh, 2024? Is it 24? No, 26. I'm sorry. 2026. And, um, I mean, what might Brian Kemp be doing around that time? We'll keep an eye on that. By the way, Donald Trump at the uh, rally in Waco over the weekend. First of all, let's talk about the fact that uh, he's posting social media pictures of him holding a bat next to the... New York district attorney that's investigating his hush money, uh, money laundering sort of, uh, coming from campaign. Yeah. He, Alvin Bragg, he has a picture of him holding a baseball bat next to a photo of Alvin Bragg. And of course, uh, predicted death and destruction if he were to be indicted. But how did, how does that, how does that help his defense Against the January 6th insurrection, exactly. I don't quite under... Trying to understand the way that man thinks would lead me to some pretty dark places, though, I believe. Now, speaking of uh, uh, Georgia Senate races, uh, now that I think about it, mm, this might... Ooh, this could be juicy. Uh, so, while Brian Kemp, I, I personally believe, is going to run against John Ossoff when his seat comes uh, open in four years, I also, no, I'm sorry, three years now. Um, <clears throat> I also believe 
<laughs> Donald Trump over the weekend floated the idea of Marjorie Taylor Greene running for Senate. Donald has done a really, really poor job picking horses when it comes to Georgia Senate races. <laughs> and he'd be, speaking of horses, uh, <laughs> hey, lady, why the long face? Um, anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene would be maybe worse than Herschel Walker. No, no, I, I think that's the floor. And look, the guy got like more than 48% of the vote, so maybe I'm wrong here. But I happen to think Marjorie Taylor Greene would get trounced in a GOP primary before even getting to a general election ballot. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she moved to the district she moved to because it's the district she needed to move to in order to ascend to what kind of a boil in the ass of American democracy that she is. She could not win against a Brian Kemp in a GOP Senate primary. But Donald Trump uh, is sort of floating this idea and, and did so at the Waco rally. Um, here's the thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene really wants to be his VP pick. So it's almost, it's almost like that girl who has the hots for the high school quarterback, and yet he keeps calling her a really good friend while ogling other girls. Or maybe maybe he's setting her up with one of the teammates instead when she really wants the quarterback. <laughs> I got to be careful with this because uh, the more ideas uh, I come up with, there, there may be another uh, non-fungible token, uh, this time with Donald Trump uh, dressed as a, uh, a ripped high school or college quarterback and he'll, he'll sell those for $99 a pop. By the way, he made nearly $2 million in campaign fundraising after insinuating he was going to be indicted uh, a week and a half ago when he, when he insinuated he was going to be indicted at some point in time last week, which didn't come to fruition. We all know this now. And I remember me telling y'all this, don't get excited about this. Don't start rubbing your hands together like uh, Anthony Anderson in the meme where he's looking behind the tree at the cookout. I assume he's looking at the cookout, right? Licking his chops. Don't get excited about it, y'all. Don't get excited about it. First of all, the New York case is probably the flimsiest case. It might be the closest chronologically for an indictment, but it's like the, it's the flimsiest of the, what are we at, like five now? <clears throat> Cases where uh, Donald Trump could be indicted. No, the, uh, the Fonnie Willis uh, situation might be closer uh, on merit. Not chronologically, hold on now, but obviously there are uh, machinations going on here in the Georgia legislature to try and come up with a state-level panel. Boy, they, they hate limited government unless it's, uh, or they, they love limited government unless it comes to limiting what the state can do. It's for some reason, man, any, any level of government they're in control of, they hate limiting its powers. Anyway, uh, there now is apparently... A movement, and we'll we'll see if this this gets out of uh, legislation before the end of the uh, the term uh, this Wednesday night to create like a state level panel that could uh, revoke district attorney power at the county level. And you know, I mean, there, there's all this talk about oh, well, the, you know, the Athens DA. We we've got this problem with the Athens DA. Uh huh. Yeah, she's the one you're concerned about. 
I should point out, by the way, today we were supposed to have uh, Representative Ru or Roman on. However, it, yeah, again, it's it's the last three days of uh, General Assembly uh, time, and uh, she and uh, her uh, her folks have you know politely said, "Hey, can can we do this next Monday?" And and I readily agree. I was like, I, you know what? Now that you think, now that you mention it, I don't know why you agreed to do this on Monday before the close of session anyway. But yes, of course we can. And, and so she'll be on next Monday. I'm really excited to talk to her, not just because uh, I've been really impressed with uh, her work uh, in session, but also just as, as a first-time representative, I want to pick her brain. I want to hear like, you know, uh, what, what sort of things uh, did you not anticipate that kind of caught you off guard? Uh, how did, you know, now that you've done this one time, would you recommend it to others? Because, you know, she came from the uh, run for something crowd. There, there's that organization, Run for Something, that encourages uh, people of color and women of color and women, period, uh, to run for office um, so that uh, they can beef up their representation at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, so I, I look forward to that. Um, I've been uh, pretty impressed with the work. And I really want to, you know, kind of pick her brain a little bit about uh, the there, – there were these two, two measures to try and um, – repudiate anti-Semitism, and then that the, the measure that uh, Esther Panitch uh, uh, trumpeted uh, was going to was going to die an untimely death in uh, the legislature, and so they tried to attach it to another measure. But I- even in that measure, <laughs> even in that measure, there was you know hints of anti-Semitism and, and anti-Islamophobia uh, in that, and so a lot of Democrats were kind of eh, lukewarm to that idea as well. So I really want to kind of pick her brain on that and, and let her uh, weigh in on uh, uh, Senator Randy from Katala Robertson's uh, comments tying the Center for American Islamic Relations to Hamas. I have been ridiculously fascinated watching this struggle between uh, the Senate president, who, by the way, is your lieutenant governor, Burt Jones, who has been trying to push uh, an initiative to sort of do away with a provision that requires hospitals to meet minimum thresholds before opening a hospital serving a community? There, there, there are you know certain thresholds you have to you know you have to be in in a population of like fifty thousand or more, and there are all these other thresholds that have to be met, um, namely a certificate of need. So he's looking to sort of bypass that under the guise of strengthening uh, the presence of rural hospitals. Okay, that's all fine and well. However, (laughs) in Butts County in Jackson, Georgia, the property that's being eyed for any sort of hospital expansion, and by the way, there is a Wellstar facility not far from there already. Anyhow, the property in Butts County that's being eyed for this new hospital also happens to be owned by his father. And the dude had the stones to write an op-ed he submitted to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution over the weekend, the headline, Improving Georgia's Rural Healthcare Can't Fall Victim to Special Interests. I mean, are, are we... And by the way, did not mention the whole property situation. The audat, The stones on that guy. He's not talking about his special interests. He's talking about Wellstar. Wellstar, who, of course, ditched downtown Old Fourth Ward, Atlanta, when they closed the Atlanta Medical Center, not far from where I lived, blocks down the road on a Boulevard. 
but of course now is in line for the takeover of the Augusta University uh, Medical Center, which by the way is in downtown Augusta. It ain't like when I when I'm when we're talking about serving you know the poor then it ain't all that different than the Atlanta Medical Center. I don't know I it, maybe that it's tied to a university and then there there's some funding. I mean there was supposed to be like 105 million dollars that went to uh, university college funding uh, if I'm not mistaken. Sonny Purdue by the way, the former governor is the uh, university uh, chancellor, the state university chancellor. And so I mean there's that all that murkiness involved in that. See it's governor Kemp and Wellstar and even like Sonny Purdue versus Burt Jones in this case. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got Burt Jones, whose dad owns a piece of property that a hospital potentially built in Butts County would be built on if it were, I don't know, magically sold to somebody who wanted to build something on it. But Burt Jones wants to tell us that he doesn't want Georgia's healthcare scenario you know, it's it's quality to fall victim to special interests. By the way, with North Carolina expanding uh, to accept Medicaid, there are now 40 states in the United States that have accepted Medicaid expansion. Georgia is one of the 10 that haven't. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's, what is he, CEO? Gabe Sterling uh, took a swipe at Senator Shea Roberts. Shea tweeting... Uh, over the weekend that today marks two years since Governor Brian Kemp signed the repressive elections bill SB202 into law. And while Democrats have proved that we can still fight and win under this rigged system, I look forward to a day where election laws protect democracy, not infringe upon it. Well, Gabe Sterling wasn't too happy with that and decided to uh, retweet with the one line, Shay O'Shea, your rationalizations are just, you know, wrong. Except no. I mean, I stood in an hour-long line to vote last Senate cycle. I mean, early voting, but still, an hour line to vote to early vote? Why should it be an hour long? I live in OTP Atlanta, and this stupid SB202 banned uh, facilities and staffing donations, like what the Atlanta Hawks or the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United did when they offered up State Farm Arena or Mercedes-Benz Stadium to assist in 2020. I mean... You literally got to walk out on a huge ass football field and a sea of voting machines and lots of staffing there to help you. We were done in minutes. It took longer to park than it did to vote back in 2020. But SB202 made that sort of thing not available anymore. Now, I, I tweeted this to Gabe and he said uh, those venues were available in 2020 because of COVID. They're not, I don't know what he's trying to say. They are not a single now. I think he's trying to say they're not available now because they're doing normal business. Oh, okay, that, that's regardless. The SB2, whether they are or aren't available isn't the question. And they would not always be available because the Hawks have games. Atlanta United has games. There's an Ed Sheeran concert coming up in May. Uh, for example, I, I, I readily understand that concert and, and, and sports venues aren't always available. But they sometimes are and can handle huge volumes of people. SB202 made that not even a possibility anymore. He says uh, counties reduced, uh, reduced early voting locations. S staffing was an issue. And you, uh, because, of course, remember as well, in larger counties, we got fewer drop boxes. They expanded them in rural counties. They made them that they had to happen at all in rural counties. So, in their minds, they expanded early voting, but they actually compressed it in 
high-density counties because they're blue counties. And he says, uh, and you could have voted Election Day with no line. Well, of course I could have perhaps voted on Election Day with no line, but how, how am I supposed to predict that? And then he said, apps also showed wait times, so you could you chose to wait an hour. Here's the thing, Gabe. Um, I could have gotten in my car and driven 25, 30 minutes down to South Fulton to vote where there was no line, no waiting, and then driven another 25, 30 miles back to where I live. But if I'm going to stand in line to vote in one place or get in the car and drive an hour to vote in another, am I not still spending an hour to vote? And you know what would have helped that problem out, Gabe? Uh, the mobile elections buses that you also see were banned in SB202. That's right. Those mobile voting buses, they could have been moving around to assist with some of the overburdened polling places too because well, that worked in 2020 as well. But they got rid of that. And also, of course, he doesn't mention the curtailed runoff, uh, uh, early voting options during uh, runoffs, and uh, that one of the weeks that f- fell in that window was Thanksgiving week. And then, of course, there's that quirky little law about like uh, how many days after a holiday you can't have Saturday vote. So it eliminated a Saturday. Remember, they were going to fight that, and then they decided not to. Well, he basically said, well, we just we chose not to. No, you were going to fight it. And then you realized you were up against the wall. You also realized it was pretty bad optics. And it made your precious SB202 look like a voter repression law, which we all know it is. Last segment of the Ron Show for Monday, March 27th. Um, Kind of excited uh, to see that uh, our beloved Atlanta Braves, who, by the way, I mean, are just, we're we're just, we're, oh, I can just, you can, you can sense it. Like the, the weather's almost ready severe weather we had over the last couple of days may say otherwise, but pretty excited. Uh, the Braves have rolled out what they call their City Connect uniforms, and uh, I don't know how many folks uh, have had a chance to see this, but they're basically rolling out what looks like the uh, old 1974-era, you know, Hank Aaron-style, um, you know, brighter, brighter blue and... Uh, read uh, the difference being instead of the circle script a they're going with the modern a uh, it'll have uh, the, the the trifold hat with you know the the, the 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 white triangular crest at the at the at the front of the head and then blue throughout the rest uh, it's so it's just evocative so much of the Hank Aaron era <clears throat> I guess my my one beef would be I really want to see like some Superstation TBS era powder blues. I want to see something powder blue. Can can I get a can I get a powder blue? Just you know, bring me back to my childhood back in the 1980s. Anyway, these uh, new uniforms are pretty sweet. I think, uh, and they they've got a home and a road set. There will be like blue sleeves on both, and a, a white uh, white uh, abdominal uh, for the home and gray for the road. And the only thing on the jersey you see on the front is the. Uh, the script A, the, the 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 current Atlanta A, with the word the in front of it, so it's literally say the A, small the big A. Um, anyway, I think they look pretty sweet. Just another opportunity for Major League Baseball and uh, fanatics and the Atlanta Braves to make some money off of us by buying yet another uniform set. And I'm even saying I, I would buy I'd buy some powder blues. Can we get some powder blues? I'd love to see some powder blues, please.
Okay, before we wrap the show, uh, I do like to spend a little bit of time throughout the month of March talking about some important things that happened in women's history on that date. Did not cover Saturday and Sunday on Friday, so let me do that real quick. Uh, Lillian Fishburne, the first African-American female to hold the rank of Rear Admiral in the United States Navy, born on this day in 1949. Uh, Tony Cade, Bam- I'm sorry, born on Saturday's date in 1949. Tony Cade Bambera was born on Saturday's date in 1939. She challenged masculinist assumptions in black radical discourse of the 60s and wrote the short fiction Gorilla, My Love. Okay. Uh, Gloria Steinem, women's rights advocate, organizer, journalist, born on Saturday's date in 1934. She, of course, the founding editor of Ms. Magazine, also helped found National Women's Political Caucus, the Women's Action Alliance, and the Coalition of Labor Union Women. And, oh my gosh, Grammy Award-winning artist Aretha Franklin, born in Memphis, Tennessee, Saturday's date. The year was 19... 19- 42. Uh, when we go to Sunday, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman U.S. Supreme Court justice, born on this day in 1930. Nancy Pelosi, the first woman speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and Democratic California representative, born on yesterday's date. I keep saying that wrong. Yesterday's date, 1940. And our theme here, Grammy Award-winning singer, actor Diana Ross of the Supremes, born on yesterday's date in the year 1944. It was on today's date that Effa Manley, co-owner and manager with husband Abe of the Negro Baseball League team, the Brooklyn Eagles, was born today in 1897. She supported immigration, I'm sorry, integration with the NAACP, worked hard to get Negro League players inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as well. Uh, Julia Alvarez, a Dominican-American poet, novelist, and essayist, was born on this day in 1950. Her first novel, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents, was highly acclaimed for its portrayal of the integration of Latina immigrants in the U.S. mainstream. Pamela Gordon became Bermuda's first woman prime minister today in 1997. Sarah Vaughn, world-renowned jazz singer and pianist, known as the Divine One, born on this day in 1924. And here we go again, another Grammy-winning artist, Mariah Carey, winner of multiple Grammy Awards, born on this day in 1970. Okay, do have to end the show. I've got to go... uh, do the real estate thing. Have I mentioned I'm a real estate agent, by the way? A realtor? Yeah. I'm glad to help you with that. Feel free to hit me up at Ron on the Real uh, on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Ron at Ron on the Real if you want to email me. And uh, my web address is ronontheReal.com. All the latest listings and open houses. If you're looking to maybe sell, you're not sure what your home value is worth, you can check that out there for you as well. Uh, nonetheless, the more I talk, the less time I have to be in traffic to catch up with these folks that I'm about to show a house to in Stockbridge. So um, I'm going to leave you with that. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app and at AmericaOneRadio.com. If you want to catch up on uh, past blog uh, posts or, or audio from past shows, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. You just head to uh, ronshowatl.com. And you can catch up and and hear all of today's episode or any past episodes you like. RonshowATL.com. Have a great one. Listen, it's no secret that the housing market is in fluctuation right now. We went through an intense seller's market for a little more than 18 months, not just in Metro Atlanta, but throughout the United States and the state of Georgia, obviously. So now things are cooling off a little bit. Interest rates are going up. Buyers are a little more tentative. What does that mean for you if you are looking to still kind of cash in on the equity you've grown over the last few years and potentially selling your home? Well, it means that you have to hire a savvy, smart realtor, someone who knows the negotiating game and how to market your home professionally. Guess what? 
That's me. That's right. Not only am I the Rancho host, but I'm also a realtor with EXP Realty. Anyone with a few hundred dollars and a few weeks to get a license can list your home. It takes someone with decades of marketing experience to market your home and get it sold at top dollar. Call me. Let's discuss your options. 843-283-0078 or log on at rononthereal.com. My email address, ron at rononthereal.com. Georgia MLS 396 720 